you have an opportunity in your work to open the doors of your mind for significant creativity and innovation that can catapult your success. The legendary basketball player, for instance, Michael Jordan, he was known for putting unprecedented time into the basics, practicing such drills as dribbling, free throw shots, layups for hours per day for his entire career. Well, as Zig Ziglar points out in a short clip I'm about to play, this allowed Michael to play much of the game with reflexive movements that he didn't even have to think about. And in doing so, he freed up his brain to make spontaneous creative moves that gave him his legendary success. So how does that relate to us? Are we pursuing mastery in our work and roles in order to free up and allow for creativity that leads to innovation? This is our discussion today. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, a top-ranked all-time career podcast in Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we expound on Zig Ziggler's be, do, and have philosophy, meaning you have to be the right kind of person, then do the right things before you can expect to have what really matters in life. And we want you to have what matters. Also, check out my podcast, What Drives You, where we talk with people who have reached impressive achievements to ask what drove them, good and bad. And we dig into the very motives that drive us all with the goal of clarifying just what is driving you. Then in my True Life podcast, we want to get you fully functioning physically so your body doesn't hold you back. You can find all three of my shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. And if you're new to The Ziggler Show, I invite you to visit ziggler.com. Connect with Tom Ziggler and the Ziggler family about upcoming events and how they can come alongside you and help you inspire your true performance. I'm going to cue up a four minute clip from Zig Ziglar where he discusses this issue of mastering aspects of our work and life and how it can free up our minds for creativity and from that innovation. I posed a question on Facebook and I invite you to join me there so I can get your feedback for these shows that I do like this. You can find me at Agent K is in Kevin, Agent K Miller. This time I asked, what have you become an expert in and can do nearly effortlessly? Well, Tom Ziegler and I talked through the issues and the comments and as usual brought up further relevant points, such as having anything that we have mastery in gives us so much joy and value because it's an area we have control. I mean, you may find a primary takeaway from this episode being just that, giving more value to what you have mastery in or want to pursue mastery in so as to enjoy an area of life that you have control over and how that relates to the rest of your life, especially here in this world where we often struggle with feeling out of control. So coming up next, I'm going to give you a four minute clip from Zig Ziglar. Then Tom Ziglar and I will dive into the comments. Step number one, in order to set your goals, you need to take a sheet of paper. In the performance planner, we have one identified as the wild idea sheet. Now what you wanna do is you wanna print everything you wanna be or do or have. Now a lot of people say, well now Ziegler, that'll take me three days. I can absolutely assure you that fully 90% of everything you want to be or do or have that's in your mind at this point will be on paper within an hour. Print everything. Now, why do we say print it? Printing requires more concentration. That burns it more deeply into the subconscious mind. Now, let me tell you, what is by far the greatest benefit which comes from following a goals program. You program your left brain that releases your creative right brain. Your creativity, if you follow these steps, I can absolutely assure you will catapult many, many steps forward. In the September, October 1992 issue of Psychology Today, there was a fascinating article in there about why Chinese math students do so much better than American math students. And they gave as the prime reason the Chinese students learned their multiplication table until it almost becomes nauseating. Over and over and over and over, they drill them, drill them, drill them, and drill them. That left brain is completely programmed. 
You wake one of them up at 2.30 in the morning and say, what is 23 times 31? And bang, they can give you the answer. Now what that does is simply programs it so carefully that when they get into the abstract, which requires that creativity, they're infinitely more effective. Now you think about this, how many times have you ever heard a coach talking about one of his players, the media is asking him a question, and he said, well, you just can't coach that. Now let me give you a couple of examples. Michael Jordan, I believe, is one of the greatest athletes to ever live. But Jordan has such tremendous athletic skills and so much creativity. Let me tell you why he's so creative. He has spent thousands of hours learning all of the fundamentals, the dribble, the pass, the over the shoulder, the anticipation. And when he gets in a situation he's never been confronted with before, and there's never been a game where every player is not confronted with something he's never been confronted before, then what he has done is so fundamentally sound left brain that he is free to be creative right brain. Now, fortunately, he has the athletic skill to follow through on that creativity. One of the mistakes that industry is learning right now, and hopefully we'll be able to teach it to more people, is simply this. You can get promoted too fast. You can move up too quickly. You can move up before you have got all of the details so fundamentally sound in your left brain that your creativity is never really freed to come up with innovative new ideas in doing the job you're doing. One of the reasons the rage today and has been now for several years is for top management to go to the bottom rung to ask questions about ways to improve is because that individual has been doing that routine job thousands of times and in the process they've come up with some creative ideas. But because of their personality and positions and because of the closed door policy that a lot of businesses have, they literally do not want to go to the upper levels and say, got an idea. Now what this does, when you print it, then you're really disciplining your left brain, you're learning it thoroughly, that frees the right brain. Tom, I started off the post or the survey on Facebook asking this question, you know, what do you have expertise or mastery in? And I put a couple of my own in there as well. I'm aware of uh, mountain biking, you know, is one. I mean, I've been biking all my life. I mean, I think I got, you know, started to ride bikes at three or four. I remember my first real bike at age five and started racing BMX at 10 after that's what we did, you know, back then before, before screens, we actually just went outside and rode bikes and messed around. And uh, I've been doing it competitively. And I'm so aware that, you know, especially on a downhill now, as I go out to ride, that I can go careening down some downhill and have multiple times where I kind of lose it. Um, and I, and I'm like prepared to, to hit the dust and I don't, my body is just so good at reacting even, even better than my mind. And that's what I thought of when I heard your dad give this message on mastery. And it reminded me of Malcolm Gladwell's outliers book where he talks about the 10,000 hours. That's a lot. I mean, I put that into cycling, but I was thinking about that because I also cited podcasting, which is not fair because it's really just saying, having a conversation. So you and I jump on this, you know, you do it well too, but I was thinking about that 10,000 hours. That's a lot. If I've done a thousand shows, which I've done, I think I've done over that now, but a thousand shows. And if they last hour, even if they lasted an hour and a half, which they don't average that much. And if I have, you know, an hour, well, even that, you know, an hour of prep, but it's still not of actually doing it. And I'm still a long way from my 10,000 hours. That's a little, that's actually a little demoralizing, uh, as I, as I think about it, but it's, that's a big deal to have something that you are so masterful in that you can do it thoughtlessly. And I'm just intrigued by this idea that your dad shared in the message we just heard of then it frees us up to end that moment of doing it, to be creative and go outside the box in essence. Uh, so that's why, that's why I wanted to bring the show here and uh, talk about it. What do you think? I love it. And it, you know, and it speaks to uh, the genesis of Zig Ziglar's speaking career. Yeah. We've talked about it before. He was in direct sales and he sold stainless steel waterless cookware. And he did it through a dinner party format where there would be five couples around the table and he would be cooking them dinner 
demonstrating each pan in the set of cookware. Um, and it was a script. And he did that hundreds of times, so much so that he was able to give all of his attention to the body language, yeah. facial expressions, and tone of the people at the dinner party. Yeah. And that's what made him ultimately successful. It wasn't that he didn't know the, the script by, you know, perfectly. It was that he could, like you do going down a mountain, which is crazy, by the way, on a bike. Uh, there, I ski occasionally, and there are boulders underneath the snow. And so I'm imagining you riding down that same area where there is no snow to protect you from the boulders. Yeah, but at least I can see them. I'm a I'm a hack skier, man. I am I'm a very mediocre skier. I do it quite a bit, but not that good. But yeah, cycling, I I put my chops but, in, I guess. But the same thing. He he knows exactly where to take the conversation based on yeah. all the the subtle uh, feedback that the audience is giving, and that's like one of the key ingredients of being a great speaker, right? It's it's. You got to know your stuff. You got to prepare. You've got to be all in it. You got to have energy. You got to do all those things. But timing is about relating to the audience. And if you, when you get that down, that's just a whole nother level. And that comes with thousands of hours. Well, it got me to thinking about wondering if we are because the workplace is so I don't want to say vol I guess it is volatile but it's so transitionary I mean we have people we seldom have people these days who stay in one job one position that long transition just happens and when people you know instead of dad having a job for 40 years he may have 40 jobs uh, and, and that's more the norm. And I wonder if that's robbing us of the opportunity, unless we go into the same job somewhere else doing the same thing, but we don't have as much mastery in it. And I'm, I'm kind of enamored with that, even with my kids looking at that. Um, I've got a daughter, Eliza, she's 21, uh, works for me. She helps produce the shows. And uh, she just recently, she does henna. She's been doing it for years. She's been doing art. I'll just say that she has been applying herself to art, painting, watercolors, all kinds of different things. And then she did it to henna. So if, if somebody's not aware of that henna, it's like a temporary tattoo. It's these little cones and you squirt out these little fine lines. She has been doing it so long, so, so much that she's a master at it. So she just did a farmer's market on a Friday. And so she's sitting there with these little cones, like six bucks a piece. She may use a couple. She has no prep, no whatever. She just sits down, put the signs up. She makes 350 bucks on Friday. She goes on Saturday, 350 bucks. She goes on Sunday and it was July 4th, big shindig. She made 820 bucks. So $1,500 in three days, but it was about five hours. Uh, maybe a little each day, maybe a little bit for setup. But again, she had no prep. She wasn't, you know, back making woodcraft stuff to bring to the thing. She just shows up with her stuff. And the master, I'm so grateful for that. She's now looking and saying, gosh, maybe I should go into uh, like tattoos, you know, up her, up her skills. She has people keep asking her to. And, uh, it, but it's just interesting looking at that and wondering, are we not valuing the repetition. And Tom, honestly, I think I generally don't, I don't like repetition. I don't like to do something over and over again. And yet, well, Stephen Kotler, you know, Stephen from author in different books. We had him on Ziegler's show 853. It was January 11th, 2021. And he has the book, the art of impossible. And he talks about flow. That's his big thing, getting in flow. And we had the discussion. Can you really get into that flow unless you have mastery? I mean, I wonder, is that something you have, you know, on the, well, you do, you do it with coaching or on stage or even on the golf course. Used to on the golf course, <laughs> the golf will interrupt your flow, my friend. Yeah. Cause there's a, uh, yeah, there's bad bounces. I will say this on stage in front of a group, uh, there's nothing more exhilarating, exciting, fulfilling, satisfying, um, than flow, than getting in front of a group. And instead of feeling obligated to recite your prepared speech 
invite the audience in and get a dialogue going back and forth around the most important things to that audience mm -hmm. and letting the connections happen, letting it lead to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I mean, at the end of the day, you still are going to, you're still going to teach the main points that everybody needs to take away. Uh, but you have to have a lot of reps to feel really confident and comfortable in going in that direction. Because if you're not confident and sure, or if you don't have the breadth of knowledge, then you can get too far out of your skis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can go down the part of the slope you shouldn't have been on. Yeah. Um, but that is, that's it. And I don't know how you do that. It's like we were, you know, you hear about professional athletes like Tony Romo, uh, who is an amazing golfer. He's a fantastic golfer. Um, and he's trying to, you know, he plays in pro tournaments and, you know, he makes the cut, uh, or he gets invited and he plays and he represents pretty good. The difference is, is that when he hits it in the rough and he's looking at that shot out of the rough, his experience is maybe he's hit a hundred shots and under pressure in a similar situation. Your tour pro who's the same age has hit 10,000 shots. And it's, and it's just really interesting how a little bit of variable like the rough will totally change everything because if you know what it's going to do and you execute versus you think what it's going to do and you almost execute that's 20 feet on the green yeah i mean that's that's the difference between i might make birdie to i better not make bogey yeah. right and it's that little subtle thing and what was the difference in those two players it wasn't natural ability <laughs> And it, and, it, and it might not even be the quality of the swing. It was knowing that exact circumstance, what, what you're visually taking in, what the wind's doing, what the humidity's doing, what the grain of the grass is doing, how much your adrenaline's flowing in that situation. Because all of those things are variables uh, that the tour guys under pressure, they know how to execute. They know what the ball's going to do. Yeah. Right. Well, and it just has me thinking of, again, us taking captive, maybe giving more value and gravity to the tasks in our work, especially in this industry. I mean, we're so prone to look at progress, right? We want the promotion. We want to go to the next thing. Are we taking the time? It's, it's somewhat antithetical to, to what I probably talk about for the most part. It's, it is. It's, it's the evolution, grow you know, uh, increase progress that I feel like Zig's calling us somewhat to this and going now, maybe hold on a second. Have you mastered it? So you can free yourself up to see the other opportunities. And I appreciate him saying that we can so often in a workplace, get some of the best insight from somewhat of the, he doesn't say it in this terms, uh, but the, the lower paid workers, who do the by rote thing over and over and over and over and over. They're not paid the most because it's not the most skilled position, but they're the ones who can just do it by rote. They don't have to think about it. Meanwhile, they're seeing other things and opportunities that gosh, we can make that better or that's stupid. Why are we doing that? And I've just never thought about it, which again, I, I appreciate uh, this, this topic because of that. And here's a couple that, you know, Jessica Smith Moyer, she's a ZLC coach and she teaches fitness classes. And, and that's what she said. Where has she gained expertise and mastery? She says teaching fitness classes, helping women find purpose, helping others find purpose through loss. I, now I'm interested in that. It'd be fun to have her talk through that journey because I assume from what I understand, she's been teaching fitness classes for a long time. She's been doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And through that kind of like you talked about with your dad, he's up on stage and he's doing it so often, or he's selling pots and pans. He's doing it so much that he's able to kind of let that habit just happen without having to think about it and let his mind go above the task to look at the people and discern 
the mood and their interest and respond to that, that Jessica was able to do that. She can be up there doing her fitness class and leading these people. And meanwhile, notice the facial expression on this lady or notice what this lady says and tune into, Hey, what's I I get, I could, you could imagine Jessica, you've been face to face with her. I could imagine her saying, Hey, I just noticed you today. What's, you know, what's happening and boom, 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 something happens. And that's what brought her into, Hey, I'm going to go beyond just the physical fitness and I can address their emotional fitness and the things that they want to go after. And now she went and got certified, Zergo legacy certification certified. And she is doing that, it'd be an interesting conversation with her probably made possible because the primary thing that she was doing, the initial thing, she did it so much. She could do it without thinking. And as Zig said, go into that left brain and start being creative. Yeah. And the last thing she said there, and I know Jessica well, and she's written an amazing book. Uh, her, her main learning came from the loss of a child. Right. 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 Triumph through the tears. And so you know, we all in life, we have our own uh, challenges, burdens, trials that we go through. Um, and, and we take out of that, you know, how much do we take out of that? What is it? What is it? How does it change us? What does it help us to learn about ourselves and how we can help others? And she has, has chosen, uh, not because she set out going, boy, I hope something happens to me so I can help other people. That wasn't it at all. It's like, gosh, how do I, how do I make sense of what happened and what's the purpose in this? And she channeled that into how do I get well first? What do I need to do for myself? How can I help other people get well and physically? And then that opened the doors to the emotional, mm-hmm. right. And to the, to the other challenges that, that, that people face. Um, there's a lot of, you know, the 10,000 hours, um, I think, Kevin, you've also got to count in that. It's not only the doing it, it's the thinking of it and everything. And everybody's a little different. If I'm writing something for a book um, and I've got a month to do it, I might spend three three weeks writing it in my head and then it just pops out. And people think, wow, that just popped out. Yeah, true. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's, I've tested it in conversations in the hallway and on stage and in elevators. I mean, that was one of the things that uh, dad would do is he would get warmed up to go on stage. I mean, his craft was so amazing on stage, but if you walk from with dad from, you know, Hey, I'll, I'll come to your room at eight and we'll go down and have breakfast and we'll, you know, then we'll get in the car and we'll go over to the facility and we'll, we'll sit in the green room and then I'll be there when you go on stage. I mean, that's what I did with him uh, numerous times. Yeah. Well, he told bits and pieces of his talk every step of the way. The person on the elevator got a joke. The, the, the driver of the car got a story. The waiter or waitress that, that, that served us breakfast, you know, got an introduction. It was just amazing to see how uh, in neuroscience, it's, it's, it's kind of like creating the slots in your brain so that, you know, as you, as you plan it out, as you practice it out, when you finally get there to the big stage, whether that stage is your business or, you know, a, a literal stage, uh, it just happens. It flows. Yeah, it makes me think of just immersion. And I'm thinking back even to what I said about podcasting. Yeah, if I put in the time of not just this right here, face-to-face, doing a conversation, recording a podcast, but think about the thought that goes into it, the planning, the research that I've done, the production. I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm over my 10,000 hours by now. And it feels that way. I did an interview or had a guest on yesterday. And afterwards, she was effusive about how I, how I did, about the conversation that didn't feel like an interview and all these things. And, and I thought, I'm able to keep up with the converse, conversation and think beyond it now. And I'm so grateful for that. It's so different. It's interesting because my preparation is so much less than it used to be because it doesn't have to be. I don't have to sit there and read a script or go through my exact questions and flow and I can be a little more organic. You are listening to The Ziegler Show and this episode on mastery to open up creativity. 
And next, I read some comments from people who have endured trauma. And we talk about how this actually does foster a level of mastery in the aspect of perception that can be used for benefit. You mentioned with Jessica, Tom, trauma. That was interesting because it came up in the responses. Amy Ellis, she says her skill is identifying narcissists in 10 minutes or less. And Laura McCorkle responded and said exactly what I was going to say, figuring out people's intentions pretty quickly. Now, I know Laura and she has a very difficult story with a husband that's actually in jail right now. Uh, definitely scores high on the narcissist list. And he had her immersed in a very strict religious, uh, arguable cult uh, is what I'd say. So to see that, that, that trauma, uh, actually Tamara McDuff, she also responded, seeing opportunities in tragedy or loss and standing on my mess and not in it. I've been doing a lot of personal growth and reflection. So here's three that I, that I would say to what you brought up with Jessica have dealt with trauma and as terrible that is, as we wouldn't wish it on anybody, can you claim a strength or an insight from that? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my gosh, if you've dealt with grief like Jessica, I don't understand that to the degree that she does. If you grew up with a, a serial killer as a parent, I would say later on as an adult, you probably got pretty good insight into how they kind of function. It's a little different and you could pick that out. Sounds like a TV or a movie script, but it's legitimate. I wouldn't. I don't know that I've ever hung out with a serial killer much, but I, I don't have insight into that. So that's an, another interesting place to look at mastery is have we had repeated exposure to something that gives us mastery to some degree, even though it was a, it was by osmosis, you know, somewhat, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't think I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here. I wouldn't necessarily say, am I an expert in, you know, forestry in the woods and nature and wild animals? I've never thought about that, but I actually live in a national forest. I mean, yesterday we ate outside. We were outside for probably five hours. We ate outside. We built a bonfire, stayed out there till everybody went to bed. I took, I probably spent another hour just sitting there. Uh, listening to some music, looking at the fire, looking up. It was a perfect night of the, the sky. I'm making you jealous, aren't I? You're killing me. It was perfect, Tom, that the aspen leaves are out, which by the way, what I came to realize after being out here for 12 years, no, I've been out here longer than that, uh, but at the house at least for 12 years, is that the aspen leaves come in. I, I, it now dawns on me why it's so majestic. We really only have the leaves on the trees for about four months. From the time they bud and come out to where they turn yellow is about four months. So the wind coming through them like it was last night, it's the sound, the clapping aspen leaves. We don't get it, but what is that? A third of the year. Uh, so it was just incredible. The moon was bright and, you know, I would say, well, gosh, and I went camping last weekend. This is the third or fourth trip recently. And it's like, I, I spent a lot of time out there. I guess I am attuned somewhat to it. I tell you what, uh take me home <laughs> you you know you know you're welcome but but it is it's interesting to think of what is it that we've even been exposed to that we probably have some mastery with like them with trauma so just just before this call uh, or before this podcast recording i was on a call um talking to an old old friend we went to college together and just got let go wrongly from a 32 year position. Wow. And he's like, what do I do now? And he wants to stay in that field. It's a pretty niche field. Uh, there's not a lot of, um, from it's sponsored by grant money and, and, and nonprofits and things like that. So it's not a, you know, it's not like make your own way, generate, you know, lots of revenue. It's not that kind of an opportunity. Uh, but boy, does our society need it. And what he does is, is amazing. And you could just hear the flatness in his voice. Hmm. And so I started talking to him. I'm like, well, 32 years. Wow, that's something. I bet there's nothing you can't do. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've kind of done everything from you know, fixing toilets to running huge productions. And I said, 
Yeah, I, I bet there's nobody in your industry that you would talk to that has more experience than you do. And all of a sudden, you could just feel his thought pattern turning a little bit. Wait a second. So in his mind, he's moving from the rejected, we don't want you anymore, to, hey, you know what? I'm the expert, and these people made a bad decision under false assumptions for their own personal reasons that has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as the, as the call progressed, I kept reminding him, um, so somebody new in what you're doing, uh, what kind of problems would they have? And so he's like listing them off. You've solved all those already, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Do you, do you think that you could be a value to them if you helped them solve those problems before they even knew they had them? Right. And it's, and so sometimes, it, you know, when you say, what have you, what have you become an expert in and can, and can do nearly effortlessly, I would challenge everybody listening to this to really give yourself some credit here. If you've been doing something for quite some time and you know, the ins and outs of something, give yourself the value you deserve in that. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of times we discount what we know and then Somebody who doesn't know anything about it comes in, makes a judgment, and all of a sudden we feel like we haven't, you know, that what we do doesn't matter and we don't know what we're talking about. And instead, we're like, hey, that's just a person with their opinion. You know, come back to me after you've got 32 years of experience doing this, right? And I'm not saying that we need to have an ego-driven, I'm better than you attitude. I'm saying that the way we create value in the market is to identify and be realistic about the value that we bring. It reminds me of transferable skills, which we actually have somebody here. And that's what I pulled out. Gregory Byerline. I know Gregory used to race on a bike team with him and he does, uh, what port, he, what he said, what he's a master at portraiture and podcast conversation. And somebody asked him, Hey, tell me about your podcast. And he said, I do biographies of intriguing people I've met along the way. Uh, and they've been in the podcast that he has, is called collected clan podcast. And he says they've been called or his podcasts have been called audio portraits too, by people who know I'm a photographer, uh, and his tagline. So if you find, you can look Gregory Byerline, B Y E R L I N E on Facebook. And his tagline for his photography is the bridal portrait specialist for the cosmopolitan, sophisticated, and decadent bride. That's, that's, a, that's called a USP right there, unique selling proposition. He just differentiated himself out. And there's going to be people who look at it and go, man, that's not me, man. I'm, I'm you know, country all the way or I'm you know, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm outdoors and whatever. That's not me. And he's saying, great, because the people who want that, they spot him a mile off. So he's done really well. But I like that, that he has taken what he does and has transferred that into podcasting. And now somebody said, yeah, it's like you're doing audio portraits now. That is a beautiful, transferable skill. And I want people to hear that. What you just said about your client there, what I just read there. I'll never forget my friend, Scott Stearman, who's a renowned uh, sculptor, which you can find him at scottstearman.com. And he was tasked by a friend of ours. He said, Scott, if you did not have your hands, how would you do what you do? And he's trying to get him to the essence of what he really cares about. And I'll say that transferable skill. And Scott thought, and he goes, gosh, I used to do, I used to do multimedia video stuff. And in that, I really did the same thing. I went after really impacting stories that we wanted to give exposure to, to last forever, to go beyond and and reach more people. But it's the same thing. Uh, And interestingly, since that time, Scott has now written a book, uh, one of the most amazing coffee table uh, books on Jesus, on on, uh, how does your, or how how does the Jesus look like that you, you paint everybody else? It's not the title of it. I can't remember at the moment, but interesting to look at transferable skills, which to me, Tom, that's also a call out just to the benefit of mastery. If you master, you can't master one area without it having a transferable skill, even if it's just how it makes you feel. Sean Langwell is a guy, he, he, he posted on here, he says, making three-point shots in basketball. Now, that's, he's not a professional basketball player, but it made me think about my mountain biking that I'm talking about. What does that serve? 
am I going to try out for the Olympics? I, I think I'm past my prime there. That was, that, that had its place a long time ago. Am I looking to compete? I do some, but that's not really the point. I really do it in all truth. It's fun. It's just fun and joyful. I appreciate the health, wellness, and strength that it gives me. But I think really, Tom, I think it just helps my self-confidence. I think I go out there and I do it because it just makes me feel competent. It's just an area that I'm competent in that I can then take and bring right here as I stand up in front of you or somebody else or, or talk out loud or write the book that I can bring in. So, uh, yeah, it was on a tangent I was looking for here, but transferable skills. What a gift of mastery, isn't it? Mastery. And what's that psychological principle that if we have um, some sort of control of the environment, it, it sustains us. It gives us everything. You know, it just it just the, the study that I refer to is that uh, senior citizens in, in assisted living facilities, they noticed there was this group of people who were cantankerous and no matter how they brought the food out, uh, they would say it wasn't prepared right. Too salty, not salty enough, too hot, too cold, overcooked, undercooked. And they would send it back. And the next time it came back, it's, it's that idea of agency. Like I, I have control yeah. and they live longer. And so even though they were expressing it kind of in a cantankerous negative way, because they had control, they had more happiness, more satisfaction, belief that they could do something that would help themselves in the future, and they enjoyed life more. And when we have mastery in something, what are we really uh, exhibiting? We're saying we've got some control over it, right? You can you can take a, you That's can good. choose a line you, you can choose a line on your bike that is going to get to the edge but not quite over it, and it gives you a great sense of satisfaction. Uh, the most exhilarating rides that I had were the ones where I almost fell. <laughs> They're definitely memorable. Yeah. Well, I like that aspect of, of control and a feeling, gosh, again, Tom, we've got, if we look at the pulse of the culture right now, I would say that with the increases in well, they call them diseases of despair, depression and anxiety and, and these things that we have a culture that feels more out of control. And yeah, I, I, you, again, looking at the younger generation, especially, there are so many new things. There's constantly new input, new opportunities, new ideas. It's nonstop. I have to do that sometimes is pull myself back. Right now, I'm, I'm at a place where I'm realizing, okay, I got to pull back. I think I'm reading six books right now. And I'm just interested. I'm at a point. I'm interested. I've got some things that I'm interested in. I'm ordering books and I literally have bookmarks. I bought a big thing. Hey, here's a cool, here's a cool random thing. I, so I like to underline things in books. It helps me just focus on them and I can come back and look at it, but I'm a bad underliner. So I get frustrated with myself when I underline and all of a sudden, you know, my lines through the words and now I can't read the dumb things. So I find myself getting straight edges. I bought on Amazon, these really narrow or really thin wooden bookmarks. So I'm using those now so I can, you know, stick it on the page and underline it without messing everything up. I think I bought 20 of them. They're about gone. I've got them everywhere, you know, in, in, in too many. And I'm thinking, okay, I have too much, too much good. So I need to chill out and let's have some focus. I think you need to move to a highlighter because then it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I could do that too. Uh, but there, I mean, that's, some of the detriment, the downside to the culture that we're in, where there is so much new stuff to go after, I think it's keeping us from sticking with something and having mastery. Again, I hadn't thought about it till you said it, Tom, and having control. I, that, that's probably it too. I appreciate the mountain bike I can get on. I may not be able to feel, I may feel out of control. I feel, out, gosh, at, at some point in time, I feel out of control with everything in my life, Tom, as a parent, as a spouse as a podcaster, as a provider, as a good, if I go down the roles, there's probably not a week that goes by that at some point I don't feel out of control in some area at some time on the mountain bike. I can jump on there. I'm in control. I'm in control of my time. I'm in control of my speed. Nobody's going to you know, slow me down. I go to remote areas. There's nobody there. I'm in control of my body. I'm in control. I feel more in control of my mind out there. I'd never thought about it that way. That's a great sell for mastery in and of itself. 
You know, I, I think this is the third show in a row where I've mentioned reading uh, Jordan Peterson's book, mm -hmm. 12 Rules for Life. And he talks about the lobster in there and and uh, the dominance hierarchy. And basically, uh, you got the the big giant lobster. He's got a grade. He's the king. He, he gets the best food, the best place to live. All all the all the women lobsters want him. Right. I mean, he's the king. And then it talks about when lobsters fight and they don't like to fight because uh, when they really get after it, both of them usually lose hmm. because they lose body parts. I mean, those claws are big and powerful. But what he said was, is that when a lobster loses a fight or it gets pushed off, uh, it gets, I think, a decrease in serotonin. And what that means is the lobster's body posture kind of gets smaller. They kind of crouch over, their claws come in. And they send a signal out to everybody else that, hey, I'm a loser. <laughs> I mean, it's just basically, which makes them more attracted to other lobsters who like to bully hmm. uh, because they're, they're looking for the lift. And so you get this cycle of beatdown. Well, look at athletes. What happens when a player fumbles, causes a turnover, makes a mistake, does something bad? immediately their head drops down, their shoulders come forward and they get a drop in the chemicals that make you feel good. Now, imagine riding your bike, having a fantastic ride. Uh, you, you push the limit, you see some things. What is your body posture like when you get off of that bike? I mean, are your shoulders a little bit broader? Mm -hmm. Is your spine a little bit straighter? Is your countenance a little bit more bringing on? Let's see what, you know, what's going on. And I think that's another thing is when we have mastery over something, when we, when you see someone who has mastery over something and they do it, whether they perform on stage or, or they're an artist and they, and they create, you know, they, they, they come off the potter's wheel and, or they finish the, if you talk to them right after that, you're going to see their shoulders wide open their, their eyes looking straight at you, you're going to see a level of confidence that comes out of that. And so I think this, this right here is a lesson for us all. If we have mastered something in our life, uh, even though it might now be a hobby, going and visiting that hobby is going to re recreate that powerful emotional state of confidence that bleeds over into everything else. I mean, do you ride uh, right before podcasts? Do you notice that the energy level on your podcast is a little bit better? Yeah, which is probably 75% of the time or more because I, I ride before lunch. I don't eat till I ride. So I ride, I eat, and then I do a podcast. Almost the majority of them. Yeah. And I am, my energy is up. I don't like to do them in the morning because I'm, I'm, I'm more prone to be, I'm just not in, I don't, I don't have my mojo yet. Even after a good morning time of, you know, my quiet time and devotions and whatever, I'm still not, um, I kind of ease into the day when I have my coffee and kind of get going. I like to get some of the minutia taken care of the emails, the urgent stuff, whatever, do my ride. And then I come here and yeah, I'm, I'm present. I'd say that. Um, you know, you, you talking about failure, Tom reminds me of, and I have not been able to find this. I was at a men's retreat a long time ago and they showed a clip that I can't find anymore. And it was the Olympics probably a decade ago or more. And it was an American gymnast who was trained by his stepfather, who was of a different nationality, I think, or, you know, immigrated or something like that. Um, and it showed them, and in the Olympics, this guy's doing the high bar and misses it. So he does the flip, comes down, misses it, bam, hits the, hits the mat. And just, of course, you know, fairly devastated. Comes back, I think there were tears, and it showed the guy, it showed the dad, the stepdad coming over and trying to encourage him. But ultimately, what the dad said is, buddy, at this point, you got because he had a next, next event, I think it was the pommel horse, he said, go back... At this point, you just got to trust the training. 
that was the message at this men's group that makes me think about this now that at some point, especially because you mentioned failure, Tom, when you have that failure, your best opportunity to get back in. And we love the comeback, right? We love the undeterred athlete, especially like that at the comeback is just to trust the training. He said, we can't change the devastation that the guy had moments ago on this failure. Now you got to go forward to the next event and just trust that you have done the training, that you know what you're doing. And the moral of the story there, the punchline is the guy got up and killed it on the palm horse. I don't know if he got the gold medal. I can't remember. It's been too long ago. I wish I could find that again, but that's another aspect of this trust the training when things are going poorly, when things are, are hard. I mean, I can come in a, a, with a hard day, Tom, and with, you know, something that's troubling me or whatever. And I can still stand up here and do a good show generally, because I guess that, I guess I can trust the training. Yeah. The other thing, uh, you know, I teach a webinar every day or every Monday at nine. Um, and because the content and what we discuss is in and of itself uplifting, I get jazzed from doing it and I can be tired or I could have had some situations that I didn't, you know, that I wouldn't choose before it. Yeah. But 10 minutes into it, I'm all in. And that's another thing uh, that we can take from this. When we have something that we have mastered and done well, um, if, if we trust the training, if we get into it and do it, it just kind of takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Right? It, it just takes you where it needs to go because you've been down that path before. Um, the, the talent code. And here's an interesting, this is the nerd in me. The talent code was written by Daniel Coyle. And in that book, he's, he did this whole chapter on Brazilian soccer. And before the 50s, um, the Brazilian soccer wasn't any big deal. It was, they were just an also ran. They never competed well in the, in the World Cup. That, you know, nobody talked about them in an unusual way. And then in Brazil, they introduced this new game and it was called, I think they call it foosball or, or foosball or, or anyway, it's indoor soccer. It's, I think, five on five players. It's very fast. The ball is about a third of the size and heavier than a soccer ball. And there's no space. And so what they did is in Brazil, the young players there, they wouldn't play outdoor soccer growing up. They would play this indoor game. Mm in very tight spaces. And he talked about how in Brazilian uh, soccer at the highest level, Brazilian or football, World Cup, um, they call it the beautiful, they play the beautiful game. So uh, Europe and uh, Germany and, and those countries, they play a very physical game of soccer. You know, it's their big bodies and their power but Brazilian was called the beautiful sport. And so he started studying the brain science of it. And this is what happens when you, when you exercise and compete in a very tight space, your brain gets conditioned to that. And so the myelin sheath, which is the nerves in the brain that connect, the tighter it gets wound, the faster that the impulses can actually go back and forth like up to a hundred times faster if you have lots of repetition, if you have lots yeah. of learning, if you've done it. Well, in um, outdoor soccer, you might only have the ball in your possession a few minutes total out of the whole game. Yeah. In this indoor variety, it's like it might be in your possession five times that. And so a player playing this indoor version in a very tight space uh, under a lot of pressure is getting five times the experience than when they play outside in all that space. And so this is what happens to the brain. Everything slows down and they are able to see the space that's mm -hmm. there. Whereas other players who've only played that way, they don't have the experience of the tight environment. And so that's why the great, Brazilian players like Pele and some of the others that, that come out of that indoor to outdoor tradition, they have an advantage because they learned mastery under a whole different level of pressure. Yeah. 
and it's just how the brain is wired to work. And so uh, the old karate kid wax on, wax yeah, off yeah. And, and doing all that stuff. There is actually a lot of scientific truth to that. And when, when, when people can play, you know, whatever you do, when you do it under pressure, when you do it over and over again, and you can make it into a game, uh, that mastery that comes is, is incredible. That's why when you go, when you see, I don't know if you ever see golfers that juggle the ball on the club face. Yeah. Uh, you see a lot of kids at country clubs doing that and they don't even realize it, but they're, they're wiring their brain to understand what happens when, how the ball lands on the club face and the spins and everything that happened. And then that actually translates into, into touch around the green and what you're doing. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty incredible thing. Uh, and when you pull something off like that, it gives you that confidence. And so now when, when a competitor is competing against somebody who's got that level of mastery and that point in the game comes where it could go either way. Mm -hmm. And then the superstar stands up tall. It's like everybody else goes, uh Oh, <laughs> we know what's going to happen now. Well, there you go. There, there's our charge then is to, uh, have that mastery, be that champion. It's just great. And, and folks, people posted so many different things. We didn't get through a whole lot of them, but, uh, I think we got the point across it. God, Tom, I'm going to be ruminating now on your aspect of how it gives us control. We'll probably be talking about that at the dinner table tonight. So, uh, thank you for that brother. So what area of your life do you feel you have a level of mastery in? Or now you might feel motivated to invest more in an area in order to develop or increase your mastery so you can, again, free up that creativity, which is just wonderful. Me too. This inspired me a lot. And I really appreciate this concept of enjoying and appreciating the things that we may have mastery in, like me with mountain biking, uh, not because it relates you know, specifically to an area of our vocation, but it gives me joy in something that I feel control in. And that in and of itself relates to everything that I do in life. Coming up next, episode 911 of the Ziggler Show podcast. We all understand the concept of working out physically to be fit and trim and strong, right? What about our spirit, our mental state? How do we work this out to be fit and well and resilient and aware? Well, Kate Eggman is my guest, and she was living her busy New York life, going from competitive swimming to modeling to TV anchoring to broadcast journalism. All the external world looked good. Internally, she was struggling. Then two close friends, actually men she'd been in uh, romantic relationships with, both committed suicide within a short span of time and it just tipped Kate over the edge and into a skidding stop to assess what was really important to her. Well, fast forward today, she's a renowned executive coach and she wrote a book titled The Full Spirit Workout. So we had a really rich and fun conversation around how to bolster our spirit in a world that seems to be tearing it down. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.